Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for November 19th, 2020. This is Charles Hain. I am a writer for No Film School. I am here with George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello. We are going to be talking about writers and stars interacting in the rewrite process on a movie. We are going to be talking about a really exciting new camera from Sony. We're going to be talking about an Ask No Film School about blurring license plates, which is one of my favorite questions that has come up for a while. All that and a deep cut this week on the No Film School podcast. So our top story this week, Leonardo DiCaprio is starring in a Martin Scorsese movie and it's called Killers of the Flower Moon. And it's based on a book. It's being adapted by Eric Roth, who spent five years working on the screenplay, which is not uncommon. And Eric Roth was very forthright in an interview this week in IndieWire talking about the intensity of the rewrite process and the fact that a lot of the rewrites are being driven by notes and decisions being made by Leonardo DiCaprio. So there's so much backstory to talk about here, and this is such a rich one for me. But the first thing I have to get out is a caveat. My first job ever in the film industry was working for Leonardo DiCaprio's company. I never met him, but I did work for his company 20 years ago. So, you know, I was younger and had a lot more hair. I don't think you would recognize me, but... Appian Way? Appian Way, yeah. That was my first job in in Hollywood, working at Appian Way. Everyone there was so handsome. I would go to the... or Okay, you know what's crazy about that? My only experience with Appian Way is I pitched there once, and the guy who we pitched to looked more like an actor and a little bit like Leonardo DiCaprio. And me and my partner were just like, what is going on? Does he only hire people? Like, this is just weird. Like, you pitch to so many people and they never look like that. (laughs) So you saying that makes me think there's some kind of strange uh, plan in place there. It was, I only went to a couple in-person meetings. I I was a reader. I was 20, but I was really excited to be a reader for Leonardo DiCaprio's company. And I, you know, not all companies bring the readers in, but for some reason the readers came in a couple times for meetings. And, and I was like, everyone here is good looking. Every single person here is good looking. (laughs) Were they all guys who look like, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio? But they're also like, you know, the, the president was this beautiful woman and the vice president was, it was just like, I was just like, you are all like, it, it was like a, it was like the movie version of a production company. It's like, oh, if I was making a movie about a production company, it would look like this. But we all know in reality, the people who look work behind the camera are not often all models. But it was like, normal oh. Normal people, yeah. Yeah, they're just normal human beings like, you know, like you and I. Um, it, was, it was astounding. It was, it was fun. It was a beautiful office. The, everyone there was very nice. I had a great experience. But that is the caveat whenever I go on Leo tangents because I used to work for him 20 some odd years ago. I'm getting old. So- Here's what's interesting about that. Uh, and this is not inside knowledge I got from being at Appian. The only inside knowledge I had from being at Appian is 20 years old, so I'm going to go ahead and share it, which is at the time, Leo was really wanting a Viking movie. Clearly, it's never played out. He hasn't done a Viking movie, but I read like every Viking script that anyone had written because Leo wanted to do a Viking picture. So none of them were good enough for me to ever recommend as a reader. So I don't know if he ever found a Viking project he liked. But the other thing that's famous about Leonardo DiCaprio is after Titanic, he made a couple of movies that didn't do as well. And he made a very public, like, I only work with A-list directors. And since he's only worked with, like, I think Scorsese and Tarantino and Ridley Scott, um, there might be a single Ed Zwick movie in the last 20 years. Like, he made the decision. Yeah, Blood Diamond, right? Yeah. That was the... He made the decision that uh, 
David Geffen tried to do with Quibi, which is A-list only, but it <laughs> worked out very well for um, Leonardo DiCaprio, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for it, and I've really enjoyed a lot of the movies that uh, he's made. Oh, wait, he won the Oscar for working with um, uh, uh, another A-list director, yes, but not Scorsese. Yes, yes. Um, so, but what's interesting about Leonardo DiCaprio is, I mean, first off, he's a very talented actor and a wonderful movie star, and I've really enjoyed his performances, but also he is very, very conscious of the fact that he brings the financing, like in the same way that Nicholson was always aware that like, well, when you cast me, the movie gets financed. So I get to, I get to do things with that. Like he is very conscious of that. (laughs) Like he is, he is the essential element. You know what I mean? I mean, he revived Scorsese's career. Scorsese in the 90s was not getting to make 150 million dollar movies. Right. I mean, we're ta- we're going to be talking about it's it's actually the day we're recording this is Martin Scorsese's birthday. Um, Happy birthday! But we're we're talking about a Martin Scorsese project that will also star Robert De Niro. But you make a really interesting point as we discuss this project and what's going on with it or what happened with it is that I think a lot of younger film fans right now and would not know, and many older ones might forget. That in the 1990s, Robert, Scor- uh, Robert Scorsese, Martin Scorsese was kind of falling out of favor. He had hit, he had a couple of weird, like in the 80s for a little while, and then he kind of had like a resurgence. He had Goodfellas, he had Casino. But then in the late 90s, again, there was like a little like, huh, I don't know. Like, you know, the, the movies were fine, but he was not, uh, he was not at the um, forefront. Yeah. I mean, he just, I mean, it's impossible to stay at the top, top, top forever. Those I like his 90s movies and his early 2000s. You know, I love Gangs in New York. I don't know why it didn't make more money than it did. Um, but even that, like the financing to make Gangs of New York, which he'd been trying to make for 20 or 30 years, only came together with Leonardo DiCaprio um, starring in it. And, you know, that's a... Uh, it's a thing about the way Hollywood works, that those big movies really need a star to lead them and... DiCaprio has been that star for a very long time and knows how to use it. So it's interesting to me, you know, because I'm sure he has rewrite notes on every project he does. Uh, he does not strike me as a Clint Eastwood shoot the first draft type. Um, what's really funny, too, is you will sometimes read interviews with writers who are annoyed that Clint Eastwood shot the first draft. Peter Morgan, I think, when talking about the movie he wrote with Eastwood, he was like, no, 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 no. that's a first draft. I have a lot of things I like to fix. And Clint was like, no, 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 I shoot the first draft. And so they shot the first draft and Peter Morgan's like, oh, it could have been so much better. Um, so Leonardo has notes. That's a fair thing. Actors are going to have notes. But what, the reason why I want to just talk about this is because his notes involved changing the character he was going to be playing and changing the focus of the movie in a way that I think is really fascinating and I think is probably related to 2020 in some way. The movie was originally supposed to start shooting March of 2020. COVID happened, and now they're going to start shooting in March of 21. But the 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 role he is taking is changing. He was originally going to be an FBI agent in this movie, and now he's changing the role to be the nephew of the killer. The killer is going to be played by... Uh, Robert De Niro. And I find that really interesting. And the reason why I find that really interesting is, you know, I mean, we've all thought about our relationship with law enforcement a lot this year. Um, I know a lot of people who work in law enforcement or tangential law enforcement who thought a lot about like what law enforcement means and what our idea of it is and what it actually does. And I, I, I don't think it's accidental that Leonardo DiCaprio decided that playing an FBI agent, playing a G-man, playing a cop, playing, you know, a a character that is sort of oriented in that way 
was as interesting or as relevant to the time and place we are in right now as playing someone who is dealing with the situation in a different way. And, and so here's another, really here's another fascinating layer to this, that as filmmakers, like there's a few ways that I think that this can be, you can apply this to your lives, not just as film viewers. Um, for one, this is based on a very popular or very successful book, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran. And it's a nonfiction story. And, it, and it's actually called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. So what it's about, basically, is that, um, quick summary, Osage Native Americans were awarded rights to money from oil deposits on their land. And as they're sort of in a position where they're going to get a lot of money from this oil land, there is a conspiracy to murder them one by one so they can't inherit the wealth and the oil companies will get it and whatever. It's, you know, a money grab and it involves murder, oil, Native Americans, the persecution of Native Americans. It obviously has connections to some very deep uh, core fundamental horrors associated with this nation and our expansion and our resources and all of that. And the idea that there's a heroic FBI role in there um, is, is interesting. But I think that you can't, like you're saying, I think that Leonardo DiCaprio, knowing his um, social and political views, probably didn't want to put out the movie, like you said, that says, here's this horrible thing that, you know, we, that this country did to these native people again. And here's this white savior. <laughs> I just have a feeling that that was not what he wanted to do. Um, and that's why he plays someone more conflicted, more in the middle of the murders on the side of the of the bad guys, so to speak, um, because it's just, you know, given the timing, like you said. But I think when you think about the context of it and the reason I say does this apply to filmmakers is, you know, <clears throat> you're not going to get the rights to Killers of the Flower Moon, probably. But there is always a reason to look around for rights to IP and to see what stories are being told or what you can get involved in or, or get rights to and produce or adapt. Um, and to even look back at history and find little moments like this in history that are fascinating and uncover them and research them. And so if there's a story to tell, <clears throat> um, and then what you do with that story, like what is the lens through which you want to view it? And I think, like you said, Leonardo DiCaprio is a very uh, conscious filmmaker. Like he, and he is a, a star who is a filmmaker. Like you said, the movies he is in, he is aware of how much of a force he is behind them and makes sure that they present a version of reality that he can get behind. And artistically, he stands behind and, and very few of us are ever in a position where we're doing that. But it's a really interesting situation. And the story, I mean, obviously, there's like some Eric Roth fighting with him about the rewrites. And that that's interesting, too, right? I mean, it's... It's interesting that it's rare. There are, it's a short list of writers that can be public with that, right? right. <laughs> I, there are what, 20 writers, maybe maybe 30 writers that can be like, oh yeah, I got into fights with Leonardo DiCaprio. He wanted things, I wanted things. We sort of compromised on them. The vast majority of people, and I don't think Leonardo DiCaprio is vindictive personally. Um, I mean, he certainly never come after me for whatever scripts I told him to pass on that went on to be good. Although the only scripts that I remember reading that ever got made were actually bad movies that flopped. So, and I told 
people to pass on them. So I, I'm proud of my record as a reader 20 some odd years ago. But uh, the, I, 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 you know, in general, the writer has less power and the person who has less power can be less public with their grievances and the stories of their drama. So the fact that it's Eric Roth, who is Eric Roth, who's one of the 20 or 30 most powerful screenwriters in Hollywood, I would say, gives him the ability to have these conversations where he's like, oh yeah, Leo had notes. We had, we had conversations. We, we, you know, I won half of them. He won half of them. That's like a nice thing to hear about. It's also really interesting just to think about this all in terms of who is paying for this stuff and what freedom that gives you, you know, like the studio, when Leo changed parts, the studio put the movie, not into turnaround, but like made it clear that, uh, DiCaprio's uh, manager could go, go shopping and they, they took it to Apple and Apple's paying for it. And Apple is wonderfully not beholden to the government. You know what I mean? Like famously, <laughs> not gonna, you know, like Apple in many ways is more powerful than the US government. I mean, in, in terms of games with their own, like the US government could show up with guns, but like Apple has its own forms of power and, you know, didn't crack the phones, didn't do all sorts of other stuff. Like Apple is pretty good at caring about privacy and independence and Another company or another another thing that was not doing so well in the '90s, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> people oh, forget. That's the theme. But what's interesting too is that, like, you know, it's not like Amazon or Microsoft where they have all of these huge government accounts and all of these huge or Palantir that has all of these cop businesses. Like, there, are, I'm sure there are police forces using Apple tech, but it's not a huge part of their market. So they have a little bit more independence to be a little bit more free in their presentation. Because the thing we have to remember is that anytime you know, so many of the things. Uh, we were talking about this before the podcast. I mean, Dragnet was made with the LAPD. The LAPD asked for Dragnet to be made. Like, going back into the 50s, police forces have been conscious of creating a public image of what they do that is often very different from what they actually do in reality. And, like, you know, I mean, this continues with the Marvel Cinematic Universe to this day. I mean, Captain Marvel... Um, was made in collaboration with the Air Force. And, like, the Air Force is probably the least complicated. Well, no, because they bomb weddings. So, like, all of the armed forces <laughs> are complicated. And, there's, you know, there's always a, there's, there's a, I mean, I will say a counterpoint really quick. I agree with you. I mean, obviously, you're stating fact. I can't disagree with you. But I will say that from a dramatic standpoint, there's, like, this very simplistic thing of, like, well, there's the white hat, there's the black hat. And you put the white hat on the cop and you put the black hat on the robber. And like movies are so deeply tied to Westerns because when they started making movies, Westerns were still Western. There was still a West. And it's just that that the, what the comic book movie is, what Dragnet is, it's very dovetailed into like the cops, the robbers, the law, the sheriff, the outlaw. And I think that it's just symbolic that that Leo is like, I'm not wearing the white hat in this one like you said, but I agree with everything you're saying. It's like uh, for people who aren't familiar with like what Dragnet is either like LA Confidential, which is an amazing uh, noir, like more modern noir um, is about partly like there's cops who are working with TV, like they're TV advisors because they're promoting an image that is not accurate to what LAPD is doing. And it's a great movie. So watch it. Anyway. And it's interesting to think about who pays for the movies and the freedom it gives you to tell different kinds of stories. And you know, Top Gun was made with Department of Defense collaboration, and that changes the story you tell in Top Gun, right? Like that, it, it has to. Like the number Absolutely. of people who are involved in those conversations. And now, the new the Top Gun was made by China, which is also fascinating. 
also fascinating. Now, on the flip <laughs> side, I'm actually friends with one of these people. I know the yeah, he he's a listener of the podcast. The he handles media relations for the Navy SEALs. So like these people aren't inherently evil. Uh, you know, I at least I hope you're not evil. Um, you know, I, I consider this guy buddy, and he is media relations for the SEALs. So he there is a vested interest for these forces to want to portray themselves both accurately and positively. And I think the freedom you get from not making one of these characters a central character is probably an interesting freedom. Um, being able to make a movie about the FBI without FBI involvement, being able to make a movie about the SEALs without SEALs involvement, I think those are interesting things. Although the SEALs are sort of an interesting thing into and of themselves. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's everything is complicated. Everything about the modern world. There is nothing simple about the modern world. And there's nothing simple about the changes that are happening on the new Scorsese movie. And I'm, I'm personally, I'm very excited to see it. They're not even going to start shooting it till next March. So we're all going to have to wait a while for it to make its way through posts. I mean, yeah, right. it's going to be, it's Scorsese, DiCaprio and De Niro. Come on. Like I'm there. <laughs> Moving on, up next in tech news. So, Sony last year came out with a camera called the FX9, and this year they have just announced, I mean, they'd already announced it was coming, but they've just announced the full specs for it, and that is the FX6. So, we don't cover every camera that comes out here in tech news, but the FX6 is a good one to have on your radar because uh, it's the little buddy to the FX9, but it still packs a whole lot of punch. And there's very few things that you're missing. I mean, there's a few things you're missing, but it's really close to the FX9, but it's a significant chunk more affordable. So it's more likely that you or someone you know might buy it, or it's certainly going to be a more affordable rental. So let's talk a little bit about the FX9 and the FX6. These are full-frame cameras. So we've talked a lot over the last couple of years how sensors are getting bigger, and a bigger sensor usually gives you better low-light reproduction, sort of a different kind of imagery. We've got Full-frame sensors from RED with the Monstro, full-frame sensors from Alexa with the LF, the large format. We've, we've got some other ones floating around. So these are both full-frame sensor cameras. But these are, you know, the FX9, 10 or 11 grand, the FX6, 6 grand, 7 grand with the lens. Like, they're in the budget range where people you know are going to be buying them. Um, you're going to be able to afford them. And so that's sort of an exciting window into full-frame cinematography in a, in a sort of independent space. You, you've always been able to shoot full-frame cinematography on like a hybrid stills video camera, like an A7 or the Canon 5D Mark II 11 years ago. But those cameras had a lot of compromises in their design that made them more frustrating to work with. And that's not ideal. You, these, the FX6, the FX9, these are cameras that are designed for 12, 18-hour shoot days, really easy to swap out batteries, really easy to get audio in them, really easy to send audio out from them, really easy to get video signal out from them for client monitoring. These are, you know, it's really frustrating. If you've not tried it, it's very frustrating to try and shoot a movie on a big set with like something like the A7S II. You can do it, but like getting video to Video Village and getting audio in for sync and getting time code and all of those things that... A big camera, a real cinema camera just sort of does and you forget about are such a hassle. So this is really exciting because it's like an actual cinema body and it's coming in with full frame sensors in a budget that we can afford. And I have to say, 
I've always been kind of a Sony hater. I've never shot a lot of Sony. I never liked their color science. In the last couple of years, the color science has really gotten good. Sony Venice looks really nice. Sony FX9 looks really nice. The greens still look a little weird to me, but the flesh tones are spot on. And I'm also, you know, the FX9 and the FX6, from what I've seen, are going to be a really good match for each other. So the FX6, which is a follow-up on the SF FS5 Mark II, uh, which was a smaller sensor camera, even the FS5 Mark II looked really good. So we're getting into the space where there are these nicer looking cameras in an affordable space. The FX5 has some other cool things. So Sony has long been sort of a, what I think of, there's sort of two theories of camera design. There's long rectangle and square uh, or cube. And long rectangle is like the area Lexas and, you know, the Atons and stuff like that. Like it's a long rectangle designed to sit on your shoulder. And then the cube style, like the red style, um, cube style is actually becoming more popular because it's really easy to rig into gimbals. You, It's shorter, so it fits in more places. And this is cube style. They uh, have shortened it and tulled it. So it is, it is inching in on a cube, which is good because a lot of the big companies haven't really embraced the cube yet. Canon just came out with their C70 cube style. Um, their cinema line before that was always long rectangle style. And it's nice to see them moving in a cubey direction. I think that's like a really smart move for them. Um, you're going to get 4K 120 frames per second out of this, which is an amazing spec that a couple of years ago was only the most expensive cameras. And now a $6,000 full frame camera is going to do 4K 120. Um, that's huge. You can go down to 2K and get 240. You can get raw out of it to an external recorder. Atomos has already announced that it's going to be supporting external raw up to 4K 60 frames per second. So you can shoot straight to ProRes raw in an Atomos Shogun. So we're seeing a whole bunch of really killer features come together here in a way that makes sort of a dynamite package. What are you going to miss with the FX6 versus the FX9? I mean, you're not going to have as robust an interface architecture. So, you know, the FX9 actually has real XLR ports, whereas to get real audio into an FX6, you need to use a breakout box. It comes with the breakout box, but it's a unit you can take off to make it smaller when you put it in a gimbal. Whereas the FX9, you can't take that audio breakout thing off. Um, the FX9 also has like a fancy little thing where like you can just slot in an, a wireless audio receiver, which I think is super cool. Um, so, you know, there's like other bigger stuff that make the FX9 sort of the choice if you're not doing a lot of action. But if you're doing a lot of action, the FX6 is a really dynamite package for six grand. I mean, it's a plethora of riches. If like five years ago, if you had listed the specs of all of these cameras that, you know, between the C70, the Blackmagic 12K, the FX6, the like six to $10,000, this, uh, price range for or the red komodo it the what you can get for the price is ridiculous right now who or what would you say this camera is really targeted for or best for like if i'm a filmmaker i always like to ask this question as we talk about so many new cameras and constantly evolving camera tech but like i'm a filmmaker and i'm trying to pick my camera for the project and say you know we always say like, you know, budget is, you know, what's your budget? Say like the Alexa is not, is not an option. What are, how does this camera, where does this camera slot in on like a need based or a use case? Like if I, if I'm thinking about 
this camera, what does it mean my project is going to require? What does this camera do? And what is it going to, or what is it going to help me do? The one thing I forgot to list in all these specs is the amazing low light performance. So it's natively an 800 ISO camera, but it's high setting is 12,000 ISO. And then it's super high setting is 409,000 ISO, which is crazy. So the number one place you're going to see this camera is sports and events and action filmmaking. You are going to see this be huge in, you know, the wedding market. And I don't sneeze at the wedding market. 15 years ago, I spent a summer shooting weddings and it's really fun. You get nice food. And I learned a lot. I worked for a company that shot on film. So low light was like a nightmare for us because the, you know, the fastest film you could get back then wasn't very fast. But like, if you are a wedding shooter who is graduating beyond the a7s and want something a little more robust that you can rig more easily in a gimbal that low light is going to be so amazing and you're never going to miss a father-daughter dance again because it's just too dark in the reception hall so this is going to be a monster in that world because it's going to be a monster in that world there's going to be so many of them around and let's not forget 85 percent of people shooting weddings also make short films also make features also make you know like this isn't a world in which there's very few people who are there are people who are like i'm wedding cinematographer that is all i am that is my mission in life but mostly it's a cash flow thing for people who are pursuing other passions and this camera sort of sits in this really interesting space where it can do all those event jobs and just crush them especially with that low light and the amazing color reproduction but then if you want to get together with your friends rent uh ronin 2 maybe even try and rig it into a Ronin S2, although I don't know if you quite work. It might be a little too big for that. And then go out and shoot an amazing skate video that looks like no other skate video you ever saw doing these really long gimbal shots. This camera could really cover you for that, especially because its its body is so compact, competitive really with like the C70 in a way that like the Blackmagic 12K is still a much bigger body. Now, yeah. I also think that, you, you know the camera that this really made me think of? Sony Venice is a huge hit. Sony Venice is everywhere. When I was at NAB last year, the last time it happened in reality, um, I remember interviewing like a bunch of DPs at the Sigma booth and everybody was like, yep, Sony Venice, crushing it. And uh, I remember back in the film days, like if you were just an operator, you always owned like a 2C or something because you could show up and slap the lenses on and, and pick up a C camera. This is the kind of camera that like it's going to intercut well with Venice. It's going to intercut really well with FX9. If you're just an operator and you're working a lot, this is the kind of camera you can pick up and bring to set. And it's going to intercut with two of these very popular cameras really beautifully. And then you're getting C shots and extra shots that you might not have been able to get otherwise. So it's going to fit in that niche where a lot of people who might not want to invest in a Venice or a FX9, but are working on a lot of Sony jobs might do it. I think you could go shoot a feature on this for sure. I think you're going to see a lot of beautiful short and commercial music video work on this. I mean, the, the FS7, which is the FX9 replaced the FX7. The FX6 is replacing the FS5. These cameras were huge in that like event and corporate. You know, I think all of Bloomberg TV is shot on FS7 or one of those, you know, one of those big yeah. online media platforms. Um but because they were so common because of that, you also saw, like, I had friends who shot independent docs on the FS7 that had great festival runs. I know people who did music videos on them because you could get beautiful images out of them. And the E-mount, you can adapt to anything. You want to shoot vintage cinema lenses, you pop an E to PL adapter, and away you go. So I think it is going to be... So it's versatile. The low-light thing, it's interesting. There's a, uh, we have a, um, on our YouTube 
No Film School YouTube channel, a Sony FX low-light autofocus test, and it definitely demonstrates a couple of what looks like a couple of issues with the autofocus in low-light, but it also at the same time demonstrates that at nighttime on a street, you get a decent-looking image, and it makes me wonder after you explain that about the wedding videos, like, hey, if I want to shoot a low-budget horror movie, which I think a lot of filmmakers turn to because it's a you know it's a good genre to work in if you're saving money and trying to get a little attention this might be a camera you would use for something like that because it works well in low light you will absolutely see a lot of horror on this camera oh yeah so it's the horror camera it's the wedding and horror camera and someone you feel free to go ahead and combine those things i mean some some would argue that they already are that every wedding <laughs> is a horror film but I wouldn't argue that. I love being married. My wedding was quite beautiful. And I still go to the restaurant where we got married. And in fact, I'm wearing a hat from that restaurant right now. So but <laughs> some would make that argument. Hacky comedians in the 60s. <laughs> that argument, And we're going to leave it to the hacky comedians. All right. Last item. Gene Curl, which is a great name, Gene Curl, asks, do I need to hide the license plates in a movie? I love this question. I don't know why, but this question makes me so happy. Um, so I think what's going on here is in film, we notoriously have to hide things in movies, right? Um, f- the most famous example of this is the, there's a movie called Up in the Air, stars Denzel Washington, and um, he uh, drinks some Budweiser and then crashes a plane. And uh, Budweiser famously made the company digitally erase the Budweiser uh, bottles and make them a different label before the home video release. So if you saw it theatrically, which I did, um, and I really enjoyed the Adam Tomei cameo. Uh, I'm an Adam Tomei fan, both the actor and the pizza. I'm not kidding. He makes really good pizza. And um, he uh, once took a date there long, long time ago. Uh, and um, so they had to do that. They had to digitally erase the Budweiser. It was a huge deal. There were stories about it. It was a thing. However, in that specific case... The problem wasn't that he was drinking Budweiser. It's that he was drinking Budweiser and then crashed a plane. So not a good uh, look for the, you know, drink responsibly or whatever else you're going to. Yeah, it's not. So like we're in this weird space where like, you know, um, everybody in movies has iPhones and Apple products. And, you know, when you, when you work with some production designers and producers, they make you tape over the Apple logo every time. But then I've worked with production designers in the last couple of years who are like, actually, I hear Apple doesn't really sue anybody about it unless you're beating someone to death with a laptop. So provided you're using the laptop responsibly, provided you're not using it to research terrorism or literally hitting someone with the laptop, you're usually fine. The other thing you can usually get away with is as long as it's not featured, right? So, uh, you know, when you're shooting in a bar, if you've been in a bar, which many of us have, there's usually a billion logos, right? There's Budweiser. I don't know why it's all alcohol examples, but whatever. Here we go. There's a Budweiser <laughs> thing, there's a Schlitz thing. There's a, yeah, there's, there's mirrors. There's like that little sign that hangs over the table. There's the whole thing. And because there's the whole thing, you're not featuring any of it. So you usually can get away with having it there. So that same argument would likely apply to license plates. If you are out and shooting a scene on a sidewalk and there's 50 cars all parked there, you probably do not need to blank out all of those license plates. However, the same thing probably applies if you feature it. 
So let's say you borrow your cousin's car. The car is a key character in the story. Maybe the car even has a personality of its own and kills some people. I don't know if anybody's ever done that movie. I think it has been done a whole bunch of times. But if not, maybe there's an, another opportunity to do that. And you do a long lingering close-up where you drift in on the hood of the car and the license plate's featured prominently. Yes, you should get a fake license plate for that moment because you are featuring it prominently. I think this is an inter- a fun question because um, so one of the things that the term that's used in the industry is Greeking. You have to Greek Greekings. out. Yeah, you have to Greek out a logo. So if you're making uh, an indie film and you've got someone using a laptop and there's that big old apple on the back, the art department might have to Greek it out, which means like they'll put a sticker on it or something. Um, and it's a good practice to do this for every logo when you're shooting because you don't want to deal with um, someone coming after you or having issues. You, they may never care. I mean, the odds, this is always the thing, right? The odds that Apple finds out about your short or your indie feature and you're making money and they see it and they're like, hey, you don't have permission and blah, 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 or we don't like the way it's being used because you know before that person stopped using the Apple product in that scene and then they murdered a bunch of people or whatever like that all that stuff you might not want to deal with so just greek it out and you don't have to deal with it um in many instances you may never deal with it though is the point however there are some famous instances of uh, in hollywood of where license plates and phone numbers are replaced by a commonly used dummy one so nobody is bothered who has the actual number of license plates so if you've seen a 555 number in a movie, and if you haven't, if you're not aware of its usage, then you're going to start noticing it all over the place now because that's the number people use in movies and TV shows. Everything's 555. It's really going to pull you out if you haven't been aware of it in your life. Like someone will like, what's their phone number? And they'll write down 555, blah, blah, blah. But, they, but then in Ghost World, they actually bought a real number that they could permanently own because they thought the characters, when if someone gave the number 555, they thought the characters would be savvy to it and would be like, that's a fake number. Which and is awesome. Like, I love that. Yeah, like, that's, that's great. It's like, yeah, that yeah. character totally would call that. They are very pop culture savvy. So I thought that was a nice little touch. And I think in... I think in, uh, was it Punch Drunk Love? I think Paul Thomas Anderson's movie, I think it was Punch Drunk Love. There was a number because it was like a hotline. There were cu- there was a couple of hotlines involved and phone calling in that movie. And I think they were real numbers. And if you called them, there was like an automatic message that played back to you. So there's a license plate version of this. 2GAT123 um, was apparently for a long time one of them. Uh, many states apparently reserve certain license plate numbers to be used that won't be an actual person. I would Greek it out. I would blur it out. I would find out what the common one is that you can use that's not going to be someone's real thing. What's the song that everybody who is 8675309, is that it? Right, yeah, that's the number. And the song that anybody who actually had that number was tormented, probably is tormented to this day. Do people even call phone numbers anymore, though? I, I don't think they do. Anyway. I think um, they text it. I think people probably yeah. text eight six seven five three zero nine. But again, <laughs> if you're shooting a shot of a parking lot, do you need to go out with a little bit of white tape and cover every single letter in the parking lot? No. It is yes, 
like yeah. think about its content in the shot and whether or not it will be featured and relevant and whether or not it'll be even visible to the audience. In addition, this is one of the easiest things to paint out in post most of the time. As long as it's not an action movie shot all handheld with cars whipping around, I can't tell you the number of times we've been in post and the producer has said, ah, oh, I can read that license plate. Can we just Greek it? And literally you can just draw a box in like two seconds and blur it. So you should do it on set if you are worried about it. It can be tweaked really quickly in posts if your shot is relatively stable. Um, if you God, I, it, I outed myself as such an analog filmmaker when I said you Greek it on set because, yeah, it's totally easier to Greek it um, not on set. Well, I mean, you should do it on set if you can. If it's a production vehicle, you want to get a dedicated license plate. Or one thing you do all the time, like I've seen this on a couple things, is you, you get tape in the color of the license plate scheme and you, you turn an 8 into a P or something. Um, just so it's not identifiable. It's still identifiable as someone's license plate at that point, but you could try and put in a Greek letter or something so that it um, doesn't necessarily interfere. But it is an, it is an important thing. And the, re you know, the real reason this is even an issue um, is because people can look up pertinent uh, details with a license plate. There are like yes. online databases where, you know, like let's say someone really liked that car, they could look up the address of the owner of the car and then maybe go try and do <laughs> it. Don't uh, put any ideas in anyone's head, Charles. I, well, you know, I, I, I would have. Bad people already know all of these things. I mean, this is why right. when you sell your car on the internet. You know, I've sold a couple cars on the internet in my day, and you always Greek your um, license plate then because. Once people know you are selling a car on the internet, if they can look up license plate and try and figure out where you live, they could just come steal it. Um, so, you know, it's a good habit to be in. This is why Apple Preview even has blurring tools built into it. It is just for all this. And I can tell you guys one more cool thing that you should know, everybody, if you don't already. Even if you fail and assume you will fail to cover your all your bases, you will try on set, you will try and post but this is why if your movie gets to the point where it could be seen by a lot of people, you absolutely want to get errors and omissions insurance. Because if something does happen, like if your movie's out in the world, I mean, I, not every movie is going to need errors and omissions insurance, but it makes sense because if the movie gets out in the world and there are things like this and something bad happens as a result, you end up being covered and they can't come after you or the production company or you know, you personally, if you if you finance your own little short film and go out there by yourself and shoot stuff and you got, grab a license plate, this is like a hypothetical horror story. So don't worry about it. But if if you do, if someone gets in trouble, if someone gets hurt, something like that, because your movie ends up at Sundance, you're short, just, you know, get errors and omissions insurance and make sure you're yes. protected. Errors, you know, errors and omissions. Um, all right. I think we have time to sneak in a quick little deep cuts. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. In honor of Scorsese's birthday, we're going to try and get a little bit deep cuts on Scorsese. Now, Scorsese is famous for... Uh, <laughs> it's hard you know, because he's, you know, Martin Scorsese. It's kind of hard, but it's actually not because he has made a decent number of movies. And even though there's like five that I think everybody's seen, like I'm sure we've all seen Goodfellas. I'm sure we've all seen uh, Casino, which I love, and Wolf of Wall Street and Gangs. There are a couple that are a little smaller, and I'm going to say, if you haven't seen it, everybody should go watch After Hours. Now, partially, it's the first Scorsese movie I ever saw. I was a freshman in high school, and this like cool junior kid in high school that like you know was into movies was like, dude, you haven't seen After Hours? You got to watch After Hours. It's great. So we like he had a party at his house, and we all watched After Hours. Um, 
real cool party. And, uh, <laughs> and after hours is totally solid. It really captures a very specific time and place in New York. It really captures a very specific sensation of an all nighter in a way that I think no other movie does. There's, it's a great lead performance by Griffin Dunn. Roseanne Arquette's great in it. Like it is just Cheech and Chong have a really fun running cameo. Like after hours is a, fun movie. I also believe that it is the first collaboration of um, Martin Scorsese and Michael Bauhaus. So it's a lower budget movie of his. He had made a couple flops at that point. He had made a couple big budget flops, uh, New York, New York and um, King of Comedy, both of which people love now, but I don't think either of which did well. So he was working with a lower budget. So his, his previous DPs weren't available. Oh yeah. Ballhaus. Um, Michael Chapman is who he had been working with, but he worked for the first time with a new DP, Michael Bauhaus, who went on to shoot many, like it was Michael Bauhaus and Robbie Richardson for like the next 25 years and um, really wonderful cinematography, really like, like after hours, if you have not seen it and you enjoy Scorsese, check it out. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good one. Um, you mentioned the one I'm going to pick, which I almost feel like is one of the few others, which is the King of Comedy. I feel like that's not as much of a deep cut because of, joker last year it was like it's so derivative or um influenced by the king of comedy that it's hard i think it was talked about a lot i probably talked about it a lot people probably watched it regardless i just think it's a gem of a movie about i love movies that are about the nature of fame because i think it's one thing that everybody making movies at this level understands and so they can really create from experience and there's a darkness to it that they know that they can reveal and the king of comedy is about toxic fandom which is crazy because it was from 1982 it's about mental illness it's about fame and the danger of fame and the, and, and the craziness around it and it's about fantasy and dreams and uh it's just it's 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 such a weird sick fascinating little movie um, and it's got Jerry Lewis in a serious role, and it's got Robert De Niro doing great Robert De Niro stuff. And it's just not on the list of the big, bad Scorsese movies, but it's still just a great movie. And it was the one he made right before After Hours, and yeah, it was, it was also a flop because it's so damn weird. But it's great. I love it. I think it's a must-watch, really. So that Deep Cuts was like a really early 80s Deep Cuts. <laughs> we were really like going for it. We were like, yeah. All right, I'm, I'm comfortable with the early 80s Deep Cuts. I think that's a nice yeah. little this week. That's, a, um, that's probably a wheelhouse for us. <laughs> all right, guys. So that has been this week on the No Film School podcast. I'm Charles Hain. I'm available on the internet at all of the things at just Charles Hain, H-A-I-N-E. Uh, my website's charleshain.com. And my web series is on uh, Amazon and Vimeo VOD, and it's called Salty Pirate. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School, and you can read about everything we spoke about today and a lot more at nofilmschool.com. Please leave a comment, like, rate, subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and head over to nofilmschool.com and read all about Sony FX6. We have a lot of different content about it. We've really only scratched the surface in today's podcast, so if you're into you're into cameras, please do that. And if you're into other podcasts, listen to our episodes with Malin Ackerman, star producer of the recently released Chick Fight. She had some really interesting insight into what she looks for when she's reading scripts. And she's the kind of person who gets a movie made. So as a producer and a talent in front of the camera. So check that one out. Thanks so much. 